Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor of Ugly Things Magazine. My favorite stories are those that transport us to another time and place, a different world. With his richly detailed cover story on the magicians in issue number 61 of Ugly Things, Walter Roland Moore accomplished that task brilliantly, transporting readers to New York City in the mid-60s, to the Night Owl Cafe in Greenwich Village, Studio A of Columbia Records on 7th Avenue and 52nd Street, and the rooftop of that building where the newly minted band were photographed with the city skyline as their backdrop. An invitation to cry. Walter left no stone unturned with his research, interviewing all of the surviving band members and other principal figures in the story, and weaving it all together superbly. It's a remarkable chronicle of this short-lived but immensely talented band, whose signature song, An Invitation to Cry, was selected by Lenny Kay for the seminal Nuggets compilation. We're going to transport you to that world again in this episode, as I talk to Walter and magician's guitarist John Townley about the story and music of this great mid-60s New York City band. An invitation to cry. So, Walter, um, what inspired you to write this definitive saga of The Magicians? Well, in late 65, when The Magicians came out, I was 14 years old, living in New York. Uh, I've been playing guitar since I was 12, and I was totally into all the new music. And I heard an invitation to cry on the radio, only a couple times. But it was a great song. It really made an impression. And then shortly after hearing the record, I end up seeing a photo of the Magicians in 16 Magazine. This is would be very early 66 then. And they're on the roof, right. on the roof of a building, the whole skyline behind them. And uh, this very strange looking guy with a funny cap and his hair sticking out, who turns out to be Jake Jacobs. Anyway, I was intrigued. And then a month later, word gets around that there's going to be a special on the Magicians on Eye on New York in February. So I watched the special, and it was really captivating, a half hour of how a rock and roll band lived. And it made an impression on me that uh, that really never left. And three years ago, COVID had phased out my concert production company at 35 years, and I pitched Ugly Things, you, Mike, on doing an article on The Magician, sort of a fulfillment of a lifetime passion. And what was originally, we talked about 8,000 words, maybe 12, uh, turned into thirty thousand words and took eight months, and yeah. numerous. Yeah, <laughs> and when you consider that the original Sunday's liner notes uh, from nineteen ninety nine was like twenty two hundred words, so even at eight thousand, we were really okay four four hundred percent more, but thirty thousand words. Right, and really, John Townley and Bob Wild, the producer, were with me almost every single day for those eight months. I mean, literally every day. Right, Mike. Right, John. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was daily. Right. I mean, I know Yeah, when you sent the article, you said it's it's way longer than uh, than we'd agreed upon. But what do you think? Uh, let me know where you want me to cut it. And uh, I read right. through it and I was like, 
don't cut anything. Let's roll with this. It's great. Which I which I couldn't believe because you figure I was totally prepared. John and I and Bob, every all of us, figure okay, we're going to cut fifteen thousand words out of this. You know, maybe Michael will uh, agree to the fifteen thousand words. And I thought I really had my uh, work cut out for me. But no, I, I, it's shocking. Every single word, all 30,000 words uh, made the cut. Well, yeah, and every one of them was needed. Uh, so, John, uh, tell us a bit about the scene in Greenwich Village back then and what you were doing musically before you joined the Magicians. Well, uh, it, it depends on how far back you really want to go. I had arrived in the village two years before that, and during which time I did a lot of... Uh, it's too much of a story to tell, but... Basically, I think the uh, the thing to concentrate on would be just that spring and summer before when I was uh, playing with uh, Fiddler Jay Unger, and we were we decided to uh, go electric. We were playing at a place. Uh, what was the place's name? Uh, the Four Winds. Yeah, you were pl- well. You were at the Zigzag in early '65, with uh, more with David Blue. Yeah. Yeah, or, uh, that winter and spring, I had uh, uh, played with David Blue. We were doing a duet. Basically, I was accompanying him. I was you know, harmonizing, whatever, but doing his songs at the zigzag, uh, and and that was fun. Except that this damn little audience, you know, and in order to try to get, because zigzag is a very dark and depressing little hole, and people did, didn't like to go in there very much. So to try to get something. To, to get people to come in, David would eat fire, and you know he put a little stick with a wick on it on fire and eat it. He learned to do it somewhere <laughs> along the way in the doorway, and that brought people in, you know. Uh, and and so we we went on doing that for a few days until the, actually the, the city shut that down. It said it was dangerous. Uh, and and then uh, a little later, I was uh, I'd stopped playing with David, and by that summer I would had been playing with the uh, Fiddler Jay and we decided, well, you know, uh, David Blue came along, I guess he had heard us, you know, and, and, and he, and he said to me, John, don't you know, it's, uh, it's 1965. Uh, everybody's playing electric guitar. And I said, Oh, okay. Uh, and I went out and got one. I was a little reluctant to, because two years before that, just when my first arrival in the village, I had gone electric, uh, with a guy named Jeff Gerber from Boston, uh, and we had we had, we were doing like uh, two J two hundreds, and it sounded great. And so we decided it sounded even better if we went electric. Uh, Nineteen sixty three, and so we traded in our two J two hundreds, which I miss, for uh, two Guild Starfires, and and one amp because we didn't have enough money for the second amp. And that was the death of it, because you can't tell which guitar is coming out of the amp when you play something complex with two guitars. And so we gave up on that. So so here I was back to going electric two years later. But I said, what the hell? And I went up to Manny's and I got uh, uh, Gibson Les Paul, Gold Les Paul. for uh, It had been John Sebastian's for like 90 bucks. Uh, and uh-huh. Jay and I, uh, yeah, right, so for $40,000 guitar now. Uh, and Jay and I were basically doing, we decided maybe, you know, old time music. We love the Holy Modal Rounders. And actually one of them, uh, Steve Weber had been living with me off and on for, for quite a while. 
and and you can't really do better than they do. But what's really cool about them is their craziness. But you could out crazy them, and if you turned it up really high and distorted it. So we figured, well, you could do something like fiddler drum uh, with electric guitar and electrified fiddle and electrified, you know, washed up bass or the paint can. And we had a third party, a gypsy guy named Wayne playing, and uh, and we and it sounded great. We loved it uh, and, and call ourselves the Psychedelic Rangers, which is very strange to say. There was another group in L.A. at exactly that time calling themselves the Psychedelic Rangers who never heard of us and we never heard of them. I only heard of them through the Internet, you know, 40 years later. And that was two of the, uh, of the Doors, later would become the Doors, were also the Psychedelic Rangers. So I was coming out... Uh, uh, from the four winds and across the street, Jake was hailed me and I went over and he said, you know, there's some, some people are looking for a couple of extra guitarists uh, to, to play on a record or something like that. You know, they need, needed a guitarist and, and want to come along and see. And I said, sure. So he got on the phone, right? That little phone, payphone at the corner uh, and went, made an arrangement. And we went straight up and, Suddenly, after about 20 minutes, I was in a band, <laughs> and I had no idea. And see, what was really strange to me, and and this affected everything throughout the entire experience, is was you know I came out of being basically a fairly virtuosic folk guitarist in the style of Reverend Gary Davis, uh, with no electric experience. Uh, little did I know, very early in my childhood, I did have uh, my first teacher was Harry Volpe, uh, but uh, that's another story. Uh, I had no idea, again, until recently, who he was and how important he was, and that was at age nine or ten. Uh, but uh, at any rate, I was suddenly in a group of pop and rock and roll music, of which I knew nothing. And he just had an electric guitar, about which I knew nothing. Uh, so here I am. I'm an expert, but I'm a completely ignorant one. So basically, much of what I did uh, throughout the entire year of the musicians was sh shut up and play and learn, figure out what these people are talking about and, and, and ask a lot of questions and so on. So it became a year of a super education, all based on this completely coincidental, serialistic uh, uh, event of Jake suddenly coming up to me at the right time in the right place, you know. So that's that. That's what I was doing. All right, cool. Well, let's let's just back up a little bit then. And uh, Walter, let's talk about how the magicians came into existence because it wasn't a band that, that formed in the usual organic fashion. The the recording of the song "Invitation to Cry" existed before there was a band called the Magicians. So maybe you can walk right. us through. Uh, what you know? How the magicians came together up to that point where uh, Jake and John, um, you know, jumped on board. Right, because right. an invitation to cry is the song that the magicians are really famous for, and the irony is that John Townley and Jake Jacobs are not on that recording. The song was recorded in late August '65 by the remnants of a doo-wop band called Texan the Checks. and they were formed in Brooklyn in 1960. But by the spring of 65, the band was still called Tex and the Checks, but they're down to just Tex. 
the lead singer, whose real name is Rod Bristow. And there's no more doo-wop, and the band was playing top 40 in New York clubs. Right. And so one night in late August 65, uh, record producers Bob Wilde and Art Paul Hemis, they're in Greenwich Village scouting talent. They went to Club Cinderella, which was on 3rd Street, just for a drink, really. And uh, the live music that night was Tex and the Checks. And you had Rod Bristow on uh, singing and playing Farfisa organ. Uh, guitarist was Mike Appel. And Mike, by the way, was later the leader of the Balloon Farm and became Bruce Springsteen's manager. And uh, on bass was a guy named Everett Jacobs, who was a college student. And Alan Gordon, who co-wrote An Invitation to Cry, was on drums. And Bob and Art liked the Bob and Art. They liked the band, but they were all top forty. There were no originals except for one song, and that was an invitation to cry. And when they heard that, they they really felt they heard a hit, and they got the band together. Said, "Let's do a demo down at Regent and Sound on Fifty Sixth Street." And the session uh, they produce a master, but when it came down time to sign contracts, you had Rod, Mike, and Everett all balked. They didn't want to be part of the band, part of this contract. And uh, so Bob stuck with, uh, well, gee, I got a record here, but I got a lead singer who's uh, quit. I can't sell this uh, record with this vocal. So he had to find a new vocalist, and he found Gary Bonner, recorded the vocal track, and uh, they had a record. So they had a finished master, but the only people in the band was Alan Gordon on drums, and you had Gary Bonner on vocals and bass. So they needed to get two guitarists. There wasn't any time to go scouting for him, so uh, Bob Wilde, Ran an ad in the Village Voice, guitarist wanted. And Jake Jacobs answers the ad, walks in Bob Wilde's office, and Alan Gordon takes one look at him and yells out, he's in. That's a story that Jake repeats <laughs> all the time. They didn't even hear him play. They said he's in. Everybody went along with it. He was hired. Bob told Jake, hey, we need to get another guitarist and finish this off. And Jake said, I'll get you somebody in a day or two. And that's where John Townley came in. And uh, Jake saw John... John didn't, John didn't explain that. He didn't know Jake. He knew of Jake because Jake was all around the village and, you know, he's playing and he had that distinctive look with his newsboy cap. Uh, but Jake knew of John and uh, he knew that John had a reputation for being a very versatile uh, player. So, like uh, John says, it was almost synchronicity. Hey, Jake sees John. Hey, you want to interview? They make a phone call and they get on the subway and uh, then John's hired and they have a band. So that and that, yeah, instantly there is the magicians. Yeah, and that's so that's the magicians we all know. Yeah, right. So John, you're you're kind of suddenly in a group with three people you don't really know. You've never really met before, other than maybe Jake in passing. Um, you know, how is it adjusting to them? I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about each of the personalities of the you know guys in the band. You know what they brought to the table for this project. Well, interestingly, starting with myself, uh, I just read in broadside. A uh, quote from David Wilson, uh, who was an editor, uh, for when I was in Boston and first coming to appear in New York in '63, the quote was that people, what people said was, if you wanted instant music, you instant folk music, you would take John Townley and add John Townley to a glass of water, and uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure why they thought that, but uh, uh, that was where I was coming from. And these other folks, well, you had people who were really each different and such totally different personalities. Uh, over the period, uh, you had, well, starting with Gary, who was hard to judge because he's very 
He's very quiet. He's, uh, if you want to think astrologically, he's a typical Scorpio. He's, he's a, a very good looking, very sexy and keeps it all to himself. And he's very much of a gentleman, very uh, soft-spoken, uh, well-dressed, and didn't give away much about himself. Uh, even in a long conversation, you'd never know. Uh, whereas Alan is, was like a instant, there's an instant Jewish comedian who cracked a joke every other, at every possible moment. Uh, <laughs> and was very, very forward and enthusiastic and promoting, you know, basically a promotional kind of guy. Uh, and Jake was sort of this uh, slightly misfit looking, looked and acted kind of dark and on the hostile side. Uh, but if you got to know him at all, you've discovered that he's a really very sweet, gentle guy. And that's all he wanted to do. But somehow or other, he felt at that point in life that he was at war with the world. So you had to be... Uh, well, I just made sure I, I, I didn't get into arguments because he would get into an argument and drop the hat over whatever it was that he felt was <laughs> unfortunate or wrong or unfair or whatever going on, as you can see very much in the film. Right, yeah, which you, yeah, which you can see on YouTube, yeah. So, uh, and I, being the youngest of the group, you know, uh, I was born in 45, and, and I think uh, Jake was born in 42. 42. Yeah, uh, and then the other 43 and 44 was a spread across those four years. Uh, and I was youngest and smallest and came from, they kind of knew each other's, uh, some kind of approach to each other in that they they were all three New Yorkers. I was not. Uh, they all had uh, some, had grown up with doo-wop music and, you know, with the music that came before rock and roll and had sung in, you know, harmony groups in bathrooms and so on and so forth that they so they had kind of a background musical background that t was together and uh, i was from totally left field and i was from originally i started with classical guitar and went on to folk music and i was from out of town i was a prep school kid uh and just a totally different world than the three of them uh so it was wise for me to keep uh, keep quiet and learn while they talked, you know, and they had you know, a little bit of problem with that with me, I'm sure, because they didn't really know where I was coming from. Right. Yeah, but you know, the irony of, you know, not knowing you were, you were um, the most qualified and most uh, studied musician of, of the whole group. I mean, nobody had well, your absolutely. expertise on the instrument, you know, so you knew more. I mean, uh, you knew more than Jake. Even Jake gives you a lot of credit for being uh, the most advanced and evolved. And, and of course, studying with uh, Reverend Gary Davis to the extent that you did, uh, you were quite cultivated on the guitar. Yeah, I, there's no doubt about it. I was a prolific uh, whiz kid in that and had been noted as such. But that didn't really matter that much if you were playing in pop music, which wasn't any of the things that I was proficient in. So what resulted was uh, an overlap and sometimes a clash and sometimes uh, just a, a combination of figuring out what to do with different four parts. Because also Gary uh, hadn't played bass before, uh, but uh, that was what we needed him to play. So he started playing bass and Jake and I had to work out philosophies uh, that we had, that everyone had untowardly had some 
if you're coming from folk, uh, you would generally, to, with two guitars, you might have one person strumming and another person playing lead, but very often you'd have two people picking out tunes against each other. Whereas in pop music, the official way was a rhythm guitar and a lead guitar. So one, play, one guy plays chords and the other plays lead. And coming from folk, that's just not the way you do it. Uh, and that was that was a really difficulty, and it was not a not we were not the only people to have that. That was an issue that came up in groups at that point all over the place, as people went from folk to pop because the folk people couldn't understand this. What's this rhythm and lead business? We all play everything all the time because that's hmm. what folk guitar is supposed to be. Because folk guitar comes from playing the guitar as if it were the whole band. Right. Uh, and uh, in pop music, you play a guitar part as if you were part of a band. That's a very different approach to music. Uh, and we took some time uh, hashing that out. And ultimately what the, the solution was between me and Jake uh, was that if we stayed an octave apart, we could do anything we wanted. Uh, and we didn't get in each other's way. And that's pretty much, if you watch this play, what we always did. Uh, it took a while of saying, no, you got to play the rhythm part here. And I say, well, I don't know what rhythm is. And besides, it doesn't sound right. I'd like to play this and, and, and on and on. But I also learned I didn't know from rhythm guitar versus lead at all when I got in there. And by the end of it, if you go look at all the people who uh, graduated from folk, folk uh, into rock, that was an issue that came up. And you often found people just playing two picked guitars in slightly different registers. Uh, for instance, the birds. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's really folk rock right there. Exactly, right. So yeah, let's talk about the first thing you actually had to create, you know, or put together um, and arrange as as those four people, those four musicians. You know, the magicians got a deal with Columbia Records on the strength of Invitation to Cry, but you still needed a B-side. So Rain Don't Fall on Me. Tell us about how that came together, how it was chosen, and how you arranged it. That was such a curiosity uh, because we needed something, and for some reason, you know, I guess they they wanted to give me a shot at participating or whatever. So, have you got any songs? And I said, yeah, the song, that, but my, the main song that I did as my set leader song, or whatever crescendo of a set would be, uh, was the Rain Don't Follow Me No More with an arrangement. Uh, it's a Blind Willie Johnson song. Uh, with somewhat similar arrangement to Jeff Moldar's, except Jeff was trying to be like Brian Willie Johnson. And I was really trying to be more like a combination of Jeff and maybe Tom Rush. So it's an open G arrangement uh, of that song, a, a really good gospel song, uh, but done in a very open, easy, open G with no bent notes really, like one bent note in the whole, whole thing. Uh, and it was a, a very open-sounding thing. It wasn't a driving song at all. Uh, but when we laid it down uh, as the track, uh, and we had to do some overdubbing, and Jake it was Jake's turn basically and he put a bass on top of it and he put a bass because he wasn't a bass player either <laughs> it was kind of like a guitar 
but it was played on a bass. Uh, so, and it was sort of double time. So suddenly what had picked up, the basic track was laid down with just Alan Gordon doing a very soft hi-hat and light, light snare, just keeping time. You'll hardly hear it on that song. And then suddenly this bass comes on top of it playing, you know, so kind of like lead bass. And the whole tempo is upturned. Suddenly it's double time. Uh, and then there's still a track left and it's not feeling full at all. And it's also not feel, feeling right because you just put one style on top of another that didn't mix very well. Uh, and then it's time to try say, we'll try harmonica, and the harmonica just filled out the whole space, but it also went with the picked up tempo feeling, and uh, it became what it became, which was a song we never, ever performed. Uh, but Bob once told me he thought it was one of the best productions that we ever did. <laughs> I'm is. not sure. Uh, it is. It's a Alan Gordon also uh, con concurred on that. He felt that was one of the best productions. You know, you should add, yeah. uh, John, that it, you really were only in the studio about 90 minutes on, on that production. Oh, it was absolutely you instant. Know, it was a real quick... Uh, yeah, it was in and out. Yeah, you were in and out. And the, the, the one point that's interesting about this particular song and why it came about is that uh, the band had basically just been formed with you and Jake, and you had never played together. You four had never never even rehearsed. You had no idea really what songs you, you were going to play, what was going to be the repertoire of the band. None. None whatsoever. And so uh, there was a lot of pressure to get a B-side out because uh, Invitation to Cry just sold. And uh, so really you were the one that had the solution because this was a good song. You knew it. Everybody was aware of it. And, and so fine, let's do it. Let's get it down because they had a record to get out with Columbia Records. Yeah. Let's talk about repertoire because, you know, all of a sudden you're a band, you need to play. Um, how did you go about building a repertoire? A lot of that happened at the Night, Night Owl Cafe. Yeah. So which, let's talk about the Night Owl Cafe and how the Magicians became a live band, how you worked that out. Well, it, it, it was a very, it's very strange. It was very pleasant to do rehearsals there because it was a very convivial atmosphere because it was sort of a performance, unlike being off in your, uh, a rehearsal studio somewhere where it's just you. Uh, we were rehearsing in the middle of the public. You know, there are people having coffee and having sandwiches and watching us and listening to how we we're making arrangements and throwing in suggestions. If <laughs> so, it was a, a it was sort of a theater in the round kind of thing, where, which was fun. You know, looking in the window uh, and and so on, uh, but finding out what to do and what to do with it was just a question of people throwing out. Well, do you know this song? Or how about this song? And of course, I was doing none of it. I was just, I just play along with whatever anybody suggested. And they were suggesting pull just different songs, mostly from from uh, earlier R and B kind of stuff. Uh, and one by one, we would get an idea of it. Walter, maybe you can, uh, because you did this so beautifully in the article, kind of set the scene with the night owl. You know, it, you, you wrote such an evocative kind of account of that particular time and place in, in Greenwich yeah. Village. You know, it was an unusual layout, right? It was... Well, the, yeah, the club was, uh, yeah, it was a very awkward space. I mean, first of all, you're dealing with a five-story building built in 1886. This was the ground floor. The whole space was only about 800 square feet. 
and it's uh, 20, about a 20 foot wide internal space. So you add a stage, eight to 10, about an eight foot deep stage. So all of a sudden the bands are playing and, the, and, and they're playing against the wall. The wall is 12 feet away. So all the sound is banging right off the wall. And for some of the louder bands, it was really problematic. But, uh, you know, the whole Greenwich Village, that whole area, 3rd Street, McDougal, Bleecker, even just those three core streets, uh, was all like this turn of the century. All, every single building was built in 1900, and they're all like four and five stories tall. And it was really a fantasy land. I mean, John and I talk about this all the time, and I think anybody that hung out there or played there or worked there or lived there uh, realized there was nothing like it. Right, John? Yeah, and it had a... It was at once funky. It had this Italian base of original inhabitants, and then basically a bohemian overlay because the village had been all through uh, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, it had been a bo bohemian artist kind of place, but artists and writers. And my dad lived in the village when he was young, and on, on St. Mark's Place, he also had a, a place. Uh, and, and so it had all these different things going on, and then the folk revival put on top of that, and you had a feeling that it was just, it was something going on that was really, really hot and important. And you didn't know what it was exactly, but you know, all kinds of people singing in different cafes, singing different kinds of music, and who knew where any of that was going, but you just had a feeling whether you were a player trying to make it in some kind of fashion or whether you were just looking for entertainment as, a, as an audience. You felt there was just like something was cooking. A lot of things were cooking and you didn't know what the recipe was going to wind up being, but it seemed just dreadfully, it was an air of, of importance, like we're doing something that has uh, be remembered in the future or something like that and it, it, a lot of people report that kind of excitement you know uh you didn't know where it was going uh and many people would you know think it was going one direction it wasn't at all you know i mean they were doing folk music and where was it really going it was going towards rock and roll uh but you knew wherever it was going it was just people were just cooking their brains out playing instruments and writing songs and doing whatever they were doing uh, and and taking drugs, uh, which was revolutionizing how how people thought. I mean, t taking drugs are not is not fundamentally even then, an, particularly then, not an entertainment. It was something that to change your thought process, uh, and that was what everybody was doing. Was they were changing the whole way they thought about fundamental being, uh, relating to people, relating to. Uh, each other to music and so on. Uh, so you just felt there was a, a sort of a steamy, jungly kind of feeling about it, but even in the dead of winter. Yeah. yeah and everything was compressed. That's the thing. You have these these yeah. uh, buildings, these turn-of-the-century buildings, and you just you walk the streets, and, and one after another, there's clubs. I mean, there'd be the Night Owl, and then there'd be the Café Wa and the Gaslight Café, and, and there's Café Agogo around the corner and the Bitter End. It's just, it was endless. 
And it was really a fantasy land. Yeah. I imagine it was a little bit like how, you know, the Sunset Strip in L.A. was in, you know, 65, 66, 67, but an extremely compressed version of that into a much smaller area with a much older, you know, past. Yeah, all walking distance, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Sunset Strip uh, between Hilldale and Clark, especially where the Whiskey-A-Go-Go kicks in, uh, that was very much the same kind of vibe, the same feeling, and it attracted the same kind of... uh, crowds of people hanging out you know and of course they hung out further down the street too on the strip on uh, in front of pandora's box right yeah but that yeah but that seemed more like a california teenage thing whereas uh, uh greenwich village had this rich history of bohemians and the beats and all uh, you know all that going back longer further i think yeah Let's get to uh, Invitation to Cry. You know, we, uh, we've we been talking about this song, uh, and it, it was finally released November 1st, 1965, and Columbia gave it a really big promotional campaign, including this TV show that you talked about, Four to Go, uh, all about the magician. So let's talk about how much push and, and what Columbia did to launch this single. Okay, you know, if you want, I could tell you a little bit real quickly about how this single even ended up at Columbia. Bob Wilde and Art Polhemus, who produced An Invitation to Cry, they had two artists with Columbia. This is the, we're talking August, September uh, 1965. They were confident that Columbia would buy An Invitation to Cry, but they got turned down. And uh, they went ahead and pitched the master to uh, Koppelman Rubin Associates, who were two uh, upstart production management publishing guys they were writing high with do you believe in magic by the love and spoonful and koppelman rubin loved the song they bought the master they renamed the band the magicians and they ended up selling it to the exact same reps at columbia that had turned down bob and art which is kind of an irony you know there are a lot there are a lot of dynamics associated with this whole transaction that's in the article in detail but anyway columbia sets a november 1st release date and throughout October, their, their sales, their marketing, advertising, PR, they're all getting together, structuring campaigns. Uh, the song gets a lot of good notices in November issues of Billboard, Cashbox, Record World. Uh, they ended up with a full-page ad in uh, Cashbox. They had ads lined up uh, in Billboard, Record World in January, Publicity Stories in 16 Magazine, and Hit Parader to come out the first of the year. And Koppelman took advantage of being with the Columbia Broadcasting System and uh, pitched magicians for a segment of a CBS series called Eye on New York. It was a weekly 30-minute documentary on life in the city. And the segment was approved, and it would be one of the first TV programs to document the personal lives of a rock and roll band. And they filmed all over Manhattan in the first week of January. And the program, they called it Four to Go, and it aired on February 13th. And it was a major PR achievement, but it was not national. It was WCBS, which only reached TV sets within like a 70-mile range of downtown Manhattan. So that's the only distinction about it, but a great PR accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And what a, what a time capsule that is. John, tell, you know, talk to us about that, about filming this. And, and uh, as I said, it can be, it can be seen on YouTube in, in terrible quality, but definitely worth seeing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do. No, it was certainly my first experience with filming and the media at large. And I, I learned a lot of things in retrospect, particularly how, you know, how much they direct what you're going to actually turn out to do, which may not be what 
actually represents you. But we filmed all over the city. It was, you know, you felt like a star because you're being filmed all the time, you know. And and again, sitting and watching, asking them, how do you do this? How do you do that? Because I'm interested in everything that's going on. Uh, and the thing I most remember, the thing you painfully learn uh, about the continuity is that, of course, this woman who is the continuity uh, person with a, a instant forward lens camera, uh, taking pictures all the way through to make sure that when you added something into a shot that's going to get mixed that everybody's wearing the same clothes so on and so forth it's basic continuity everybody knows it now but I didn't know it then uh, so we filmed one day and it was unusually warm weather for January uh, and we had filmed one day frolicking about lip-syncing up on the, uh, the castle in Central Park uh, and then a cold snap hit the next day, and it was just, you know, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, and suddenly we had to go back and finish that filming in the same light clothes <laughs> that we have been wearing the previous day. You couldn't bundle up, so we just froze our asses off, uh, and trying to smile and lip sync all the time, coming up and down with a howling wind, freezing, blowing through our naked shirt, uh, it was uh, fascinating, a real learning experience. But, and, you know, people ask you kinds of questions, but they also led you, they were leading questions. You know, we wound up talking a lot too much about, you know, money. I, I certainly wasn't in it for the money. I was in it because I absolutely loved music. Uh, and I don't think really anybody there was in it for the money, but they made us talk as if we were. They keep asking, well, don't you know, it's if you're going to make it, uh, what do you think it takes? You know, how, would it be a different life if you were famous? Right. Yeah, I noticed that reading, um, you, if you read a lot of you know newspapers and magazine articles back then from like sort of the establishment, uh, they sort of viewed this rock and roll thing as kind of a fad that people right. were just doing to make money. Yeah. Uh, and... And, and I felt when it came out, I felt that I'd been had, you know, uh, and it was a lesson to have learned that, that you can't trust. They filmed a lot of other stuff, but what they used was what they decided they were going to, the judgment they were going to make uh, about how and why all this was going on. And it was very pointed at doing it for the money when, in fact, I mean, even if the, the one quote they got from me, you know, I got everything else, you know, uh, I'm doing what I love. You know, I got a family. It's really fantastic. But it would be nice to have some money too. And never did I put the money in front. And neither did really, they got Jake to say more about that than he should, probably should have. And the others, it was, it was more about Gary basically said he was doing it. It made him feel better. It made him feel that he was going somewhere. Gave him a, 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 yeah, a, a sense of self. Well, they, they did it with John as well on the subway. They had, uh, not John, um, uh, Alan, they talked about money. But I think what is special about the show and about the series is that you, you shot in 13 locations and they basically brought rock and roll throughout the city. They, you know, running down the middle of the street, violating traffic, violating the law, in a nightclub, on a subway car, in an empty lot. Uh, you know, you're in Staten Island, you're on the Hudson River, 42nd Street, your apartment, and, uh, right off Tompkins Square Park, 
the South Street, uh, uh, Street Seaport, Belvedere Castle, and in the Pan Am building, in the lobby. So they've ta- they took rock and roll and said, rock and roll is basically, we're taking over the city, we're taking over life, we're taking over society. And that was kind of the overwhelming feeling that I think this 30-minute special did. And nobody else had done a special, not for 30 minutes, uh, of, of all of this, showing the lifestyle behind the scenes. And it was very exciting. Yeah, and there was another another theme, aside from the money, that they did that uh which they were basically pulling from hard day's night and where they thought that was coming from that this was that we were upstarts uh, thumbing our noses at, at the the suits as it were the establishment and that little scene uh, that we did at the pan am building was uh showing taking the phones out of the hands of the people who were running the the building you know to sing into you know uh which i at the time and i still to see it I was embarrassed. I thought that was absolutely beyond impolite. Uh, but that was the point mm-hmm. that we're trying to get is that, oh, we're just, we don't care about you. You know, you're just a bunch of suits. Uh, we're, we're taking over. Right. I never felt that way. Uh, and I, and I still to this day feel embarrassed to watch that scene. Uh, but that's, that again was, that was their notion of what, what this counterculture was trying to project. And many people in the counterculture were, but I can only speak for myself. Uh, but I didn't feel that way. And, and Gary actually said that. He just said, I don't want to be left alone. You know, and that's all. When they had this endless debate of problems with long hair <laughs> and dressing funny, got Jake very upset because it was easy to get Jake upset uh, about the unfairness of it all. You know, and I didn't like it either, but uh, it, was, it was not a problem. And the same with Gary. So again, you, you saw things that were social themes that were sort of laid on people that might not necessarily have felt that way uh but it was but it was a real education for us yeah but john it was a great segment i mean you know the the mural in the background of the lobby yeah and and, and of course you had about my love playing which was really one of the most powerful songs that the magicians did in my opinion and uh and just the whole violation, the sense of control, and very abstract. And that was George Solano's yeah. mm-hmm. camera doing a lot of psychedelic effects, even for, which is pretty advanced for uh, very early '66. And so it was a wonderful segment. It was an invigorating segment, really. For no, I agree with that. You know, I, artistically, it worked great. Uh, in terms of socially, it's I had some uh, some problems with it, uh, but. I had problems with my own culture at that point. It, it's really interesting, actually, hearing your two perspectives there, because Walter was, uh, you know, a teenager watching it on TV at home, right. and John, you were, you know, the subject of this uh, exactly. of this right. film, and and uh, you know, you exper- both experienced it in very different ways. That's true, absolutely. Yeah, let's talk about what happened. You know, you had this kind of publicity blitz almost, and "Invitation to Cry" is a really commercial song, great song. Um, but it didn't take off. Why do you think that is? The magicians just were not an established band. Whether you're going to get the airplay, and, and a new band like the magicians, it, it really is a crapshoot. And Bob Wild, uh, he compares releasing records with unknowns in the 60s to throwing spaghetti against a wall to see what sticks. 
because uh, you just could not predict. Even if it was very difficult, even if the song had great potential. I mean, the Magicians had Columbia, the Columbia Broadcasting System. They had Koppelman Rubin. They had Wild and Paul Hemus. They spent money on advertising and promotion. They had a 30-minute uh, TV special, but it didn't stick, not even in their home base in New York. You know, and then we, John and I were talking about other songs like Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. It was released on a little label in Memphis, picked up by uh, MGM, and it goes to number two on the charts. Now, who would predict Wooly Bully would be a hit and not an imitation to cry? You know? There you go. There are marketing issues that could be pointed out, but, you know, it's a crapshoot. It really is for unknowns. So that, that, not a flop, but it did not, was not the hit they expected. So you needed a follow-up single. So tell me about Angel on the Corner and the B-side about My Love, which had already appeared on the, on the TV show. You know, how, how are those songs chosen? Well, Angel on the Corner, John, uh, it, well, that was Jake's song, of course. Jake Jacobs yeah. wrote it. But that was recorded at the, at the December 10th Columbia session in Studio A. Right. And About My Love was recorded in January 22nd at the second session. Yeah, it's really why, I mean, basically they had already two songs they could have made an A and B side of, but they decided they wanted, for whatever reason, and I'm not really sure, Angel Angel on the Corner was there, and it was a sweet song, kind of nostalgic song. Uh, it's definitely from the past uh, and not the future at all. Uh but they figured maybe, who knows, that, that, that also they had the publishing, uh, which is always something we'll find that uh, producers and record companies want to do. If they got a song, they got the publishing for, that's one of the reasons the Rain was chosen as well, I forgot to mention, you know, it was considered to be public domain so they could have the publishing on <laughs> So in the summer of 66, the magicians headed west to California. So, you know, Walter, what was the what was the plan? Well, here we're talking about Angel on the Corner, which was, uh, and, and about my love on the B-side, and it was ultimately released in April of 66, and uh, it didn't chart. This was their, this was only their second single, so they have both singles not charting. It's May of 66. The band been together nine months since they signed with Columbia. And uh, the thing is, Koppelman and Rubin still believed in the band, and their plan was to release a third single, unveil it at the Columbia's National Sales Convention, which was going to be in Las Vegas on July 20th through the 23rd. And they figured they'd book some uh, West Coast dates, Los Angeles dates predominantly, uh, to promote this third single. So on June 3rd, they're back in Columbia Studio A, and one of the songs they record is the Jake Jacobs original, I'll Tell the World About You. And that song is going to be the B-side of I'd Like to Know, 
which was a David Blue song they recorded back in, on December 10th. So there's all this going back and forth. Uh, and the single they were going to release on July 18th, which would be two days before the convention. So that was the strategy. You know, record a new song, get them at the convention, right. unveil it there with all the executives, all the salespeople, book some dates around it, and let's see if we can get that third shot. Because everybody believed in, you know, there was just one single away, one release away from maybe making that mark, making that hit that uh, would put the band on the road to success. So to go to the West Coast... A friend of Alan Gordon's is hired to be their bodyguard and driver. His name is Ronnie Trachtenberg, who was a former professional wrestler who went by the name of Alabama Plowboy. But you call him Kong, right, John? Yes, we call him Kong. Yeah. Kong. And I just want to add, okay, so on July 16th, he drives the band to Las Vegas. You know, you're, you guys are in a new Ford Econo, Econo line van, that was gotten through some uh, through Cobbleman Rubin. Anyway, Jake uh, brings up that when you guys would, you know, you'd stop at, at towns, you'd stop at a coffee shop or whatever, and you know, nobody liked long hair. People, not a lot of people had long hair in those days, and uh, so everybody, he said, you know, we all used to walk real close to Ronnie, and we were practically hugging him because, uh, you know, he was such a big, strong, intimidating guy. And said so nobody would screw with them because of their long hair because they were with Ronnie. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's that's how they ended up in uh, in Las Vegas at the convention, and then to Los Angeles for dates, based on this strategy to promote uh, a third single. So, what was it like playing at that convention, John, in front of all those salespeople and executives and everything? I think it was not memorable at all because I don't even recall our doing. I think I recall that we went in, did a few numbers, and I don't think there was any real interest in us at all. The convention was about Barbara Streisand. Uh, and that's who people were really interested in. And we, we, and we had and there was some group from I don't know from England, or Ireland. From Ireland, it was the Creatures. Yeah, a new Columbia act. The Creatures. I think they were unveiling their third single, and so they played before you. They were pretty boring, and I think everybody yeah. thought they weren't into it. They were at Las Vegas, and they were gambling, and they were drinking, uh, and you know, and that for me certainly overtook any music we might have been doing there but the single uh had been jake's song uh, i'll tell the world about you had been had been cooked up in when we were rehearsing under the supervision of a new manager uh in in cambridge uh and and where we had been given uh, a, a whole lot of dmt at the cambridge um, at the, the you know the chemistry folks in the college there had been making up and everybody was just really finding some remarkable things with that. And that song, that arrangement was made absolutely with that chemical uh, all the time. And the results were beautiful, beautiful arrangement. And when Jake and I actually got together and did, both of us did a lot of classical piling on of stuff and it made it a, a very lovely song. But we were headed out to Vegas and somehow we had gotten somebody had given us uh, like four doses of acid one for each of us and i remember gary saying uh well i'll keep it for us all keep it safe and i said you're not keeping mine <laughs> i'm keeping mine you know uh and a good thing too because by the time we were on the road headed for you know uh, on a uh, figure going into lost 
that strip going into Las Vegas where we went by the Grand Canyon and right over the desert, the 120 degree heat. This was the time. It turned out Gary had lost them, but I had kept mine. So I dropped acid at 120 degrees and it was the most memorable ride you could imagine. All the way into, just, you know, we get into into uh, just uh, the state itself uh, and and we stop by, just get some food and coffee at a shop, and it's all full of, uh, you know, one-armed bandits, you know, the slot machines, uh, right out, right over the border. And they, the rest of the magicians, start playing the slots. They, oh boy, you know. And I have no money because I sent all mine home uh, to my wife and kid. And finally, Gary says, "Look, we're losing all our money, and you're not losing any money, John." You know, I said, well, "I don't have any to lose." And he said, well, if I give you a quarter, you promise you'll put it in the slot machine? And I said, sure. And he gave me a quarter. I put it in the slot machine and hit the jackpot. And it was the first time I'd ever played a slot machine <laughs> and the last time. And they tried to take it away from me going, I said, are you old enough to be gambling here? You know, I mean, the, the owners, you know, they were really pissed that someone had hit the, but they let me have it. And, uh, and I shared it with everybody and, and we went steaming on past the Grand Canyon and through the desert and into the, uh, the dunes. And it was fantastic. Absolutely lovely experience, which dwarfed anything we might have done performing, which didn't people didn't care that much about. <laughs> and the only other thing that's, that I really noted, however, was that it was the first time in my life that I found a place where they watered the drinks because they didn't want people getting too drunk to gamble. And so, you know, you could order 10 gin and tonics in a row and you barely get a buzz and you think, oh man what are you doing you know but it was free so so you ordered 10 <laughs> that's all <laughs> get the effect of two you know uh but the other thing things i learned in las vegas uh, so anyway but it was it was a grand time it was a grand time. and you made it out to los angeles and played at the ice house in pasadena how was that experience compared with you know playing in new york kind of mild pleasant enough it was more like a, a theater club, but it wasn't, it didn't have the fervent kind of flavor that New York had. Uh, it was right. very much, much more laid back, I guess you call it, or just kind of, kind of boring. Uh, I mean, we also did one night at the, uh, not the Gogo, the, the Troubadour, yeah, on the same stage with, uh, at that point, uh, a couple of yet to be known bands were and that was much more exciting there it was a better crowd uh whereas uh, up in pasadena you're sort of in the boondocks already for for la yeah long way from the sunset strip yeah and but and also it was like our swan song oh, we didn't really know it but it was kind of getting there uh and at that point by that time i had already heard that i was coming into some money which i hadn't known before uh, my parents had kept it from me. I had been there for quite some time. An aunt had died and left it to me. Uh, and so I was already thinking of um, jumping ship, basically because it wasn't going anywhere. The band, the interesting thing about the magicians is that it just took forever to get a song. And then it was, sometimes they were you know, original songs, but mostly they were covers. Uh, and and what are you going to do with it? The interesting thing about us that once we did a song it was great and that was one thing that i think people remember about the magicians is that once we put an arrangement together 
it was strong. It was a strong performance because you had basically four really heavy hitter musicians all doing the same thing. It didn't matter what they were doing. The fact that they were in concert doing the same thing, you really felt as opposed to other bands who just didn't, where the intensity wasn't there. It was a very intense band. Uh, and when you put out something, it was a big sound and it was full uh, and you really felt you were getting something. But it took so long to get any of them together that I was just, I was beginning to feel I had learned as much as I could get here and that I was going to have opportunity right. to, to take what I had learned and do something with it, where if I stay with the band, I would just keep on doing the same thing. Uh, so that's really, no, and that's what I did. All of that would have been different, perhaps, if the West Coast tour, if the convention experience, and if playing 12, 13 days at the Ice House, if it, if it was more climactic and not, not so anticlimactic, perhaps they would have had a different feeling when they drove back to uh, New York. Yeah, could have been. Sure. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because you describe in the article that, that return to New York in September of 1966 and kind of... The life had gone out of the thing to some extent. The The scene had changed. The vibe in the band had changed. Um, talk about that. What you know? What had happened? Well, you figure September 66, you're coming home from uh, from the West Coast on August 21st. You're there a week, a week later. September 66, you're talking exactly one year from the time that the band had signed contracts with Columbia, with Koppelman and Rubin to form The Magicians. And in those 12 months, you, you had three recording sessions and you released three singles. But not one of them ever broke the, the Billboard Hot 100. So you ride back in New York from the West Coast. There are no plans to release more records. There are no plans for more recording sessions. There's no new promotional campaigns lined up. There are no tours, not even any club dates. So really, it came down to the band taking a long, hard look at their prospects for the future, and they realized that the magicians had come to an end, that it was over. And John, uh, for the reasons you explained, you were the first to leave. With your, you know, your inheritance was a motivating factor. Yeah, and I think that uh, it could have been different if the band had been a band to begin with, where, because as a band develops... Uh, like, say, Beatles is the prime example, but many, many others had the experience uh, playing together and then, you know, uh, and, and loving to play together and playing together because it was because they got together and knew each other. Uh, there's a glue that holds them together in hard times. The magicians had no glue. They were like stones that had been just put on top of each other into a, uh, like blocks uh, that were held together by gravity. Uh, and there was no glue. You know, if an earthquake came along, they just all fall apart. And when the earthquake came along, which is basically, you know, you'll have to keep going even though nothing's happening right now, which means you have to have an inner cohesion. Uh, it wasn't there. It never had been because it had never started that way and it really never developed. We all had our own ideas uh, that didn't necessarily gel. And we spent most of the time developing what's left of uh, after one or more per 
people have vetoed this or that. So most of, most of the creative energies didn't that the individuals had didn't get used in the band because they got chopped off as it went along the way. So it didn't develop that way. So it just stayed the same way it was. We were all people put together to be a pretend band. And we did a great job of it. I mean, when you heard the band, it was fabulous. Uh, but in but in terms of what a organic kind of development that a normal band has, we didn't have. Uh, and that was why it, why we melted away so quickly. It, was, it, was a, it wasn't hard to break up. It wasn't like, oh, John, now, see, you went, you went and ruined it for everybody. That was not that feeling at all. No, and John, you've always said, that basically, that you were never a group. I mean, it's really, and even Jake concurs on all this, and that you were four very individual talents, right. and that you never really bonded as that cohesive unit. You know, you were never really a group or a band, and nobody wanted to compromise, and Jake, Jake will say, no, I didn't want to. And everybody wanted to assert their personal ideas and their priorities, and uh, there was never, you never found that common musical path. You know, you were signed. You, this this is a band created right. by audition and then by contract, and this is uh, basically the stigma that plagued you guys and uh, and led to your demise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think everybody really did have what's uh, what's odd about the band was many bands start with individuals who are unknown, uh, and then they uh, get enlarged upon by being in a band and then they get a hit and so on that's that tends to be the track we were the other way around we started out from zero to 60 in a band that we had didn't have any investment in and then the stuff that we did have that we really felt we wanted to develop in our each of ourselves uh, as soon as we were released in the band it all exploded in in all of our cases you know we all immediately doing things that we really wanted to do. Uh, Gary and Alan uh, were writing songs and immediately getting hits. Jake play, was playing in another band, The Fogs, and started his own, you know, within a year. Uh, by September, uh, by early October, I had had the vision that I'd been trying for all those drugs for. Bang, got it got straightened out from above and immediately founded Apostolic uh, Studios uh, because now I knew what what was missing in recording. And it was not enough tracks, not a place where you can be yourself, uh, and most importantly, uh, use a studio not as a place to record something that you've done someplace else, but as a place to create a recording from scratch. Uh, and that's why uh, Zappa came to it and stuck with us because that was what he wanted to do. And he was most known for doing that. Walter, maybe you can sum up what the other guys ended up doing because all of them went on to, uh, you know, as John said, you know, do what they had, you know, their real true vision was. Yeah, because, uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why the magician's reputation endures is because all four, even though they didn't really succeed commercially as the magicians, they all four went on to uh, successful c careers in varying degrees. And uh, Jake, Jake Jacobs, he left right after John left, shortly after. And by the end of 66, he was playing lead guitar with the Fugs. And he did that for about a year. Then he formed Bunky and Jake, which was a duo with his ex-girlfriend, Bunky Skinner. 
And Bob Wilde and Art Polhemus, who obviously produced The Magicians, got Bunky and Jake a, a two-album deal with Mercury Records. And then in 1970, Jake forms Jake and the Family Jewels. He records two albums. And basically, since then, he, he's been solo. His last album was in 2012 called The Lick and the Promise. And as John said earlier, you know, he's very mellow these days. He's very warm. He's very friendly, you know, c- compared to this more aggressive, caustic personality that he was in the 60s. And he still lives in Greenwich Village. And basically, his life is very inspired. He's still very creative. And he just turned 80. He has half an album completed, but he's totally obsessed with finishing this mural on his kitchen wall. I guess it covers the whole side of, of, of his apartment. He says he's going to get the album done, though. And the interesting thing is he still has the Fender Esquire that he played in The Magicians. And the flowers are gone, but uh, but it's he still has it. And he said he's going to clean it up one of these days, you know. So that's Jake. I mean, that's where Jake is. And I mean, you know, talking to him is a very ins- inspiring experience. He's, he's very vital, very alive. And uh, as far as the other members, Gary, uh, Alan Gordon finished writing Happy Together. This is something that uh, he actually started uh, a year earlier when they were in Cambridge. And he actually tried to work with Jake on the song. And Jake said, no, I don't want to. Uh, there's a whole story behind that. But Alan finishes writing Happy Together with Gary Bonner just as the magicians broke up. And Koppelman Rubin, Rubin sold the song to the Turtles. And it becomes a huge hit in January 67. And what it did, even though the magicians, uh, Jake and John, had left, Koppelman Rubin, Rubin decided, well, we're going to form a new magicians with Bonner and Gordon and capitalize on their songwriting. And they added these folk guitarists, Steve Gillette and Don Kerr, and they released a single, Lady Fingers, in May of 67, but it went nowhere. So uh, at that point, then, the magicians were over. Gordon, they wrote more songs for the Turtles. She'd Rather Be With Me, You Know What I Mean. They wrote Celebrate for Three Dog Night. They had a lot of hits. And Bonner even had a solo career. He released nine singles from 67 to 76. But then he won in the 90s and the 2000s. He was a vocalist with this Kenny Vance and the Planetones, a doo-wop uh, 50s, 60s rock and roll group. And But basically, he, he's been very reclusive and private for the past 20 years. And after Bonner and Gordon split up, Alan had a very successful career for the next 30 years, writing songs and plays, and he even did four songs for Barbara Streisand. But we lost him to cancer in 2008. He was only 64 years old. And, uh, you know, his son, Christian, is really helping maintain his legacy and has a lot of information, a lot of archive on everything Alan's done and accomplished. And uh, he's a good resource material, too. But uh, Alan, uh, I mean, Christian gave me this quote that when Alan was dying, he said, as long as there's an April, a girl and a boy, there will always be music and I'll be around. And that's one of Alan's last quotes before he died. Uh, 
That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful. Uh, and, and, uh, wow. and of course, you know, there's Bob Art, uh, Bob Wilde, and Art Palhemus, and Charles Koppelman. Uh, they had. I'll just say quickly about Charles Koppelman. He became one of the most successful executives in in the music business. A lot of controversy around him, but regardless, for example, in 1986, he formed this SBK Entertainment World. He sold it to EMI just three years later for three hundred million dollars. And he had many professional highlights through his life, but he died just just last November at the age of 82. And not far from you, John, which is ironic that, yeah, around the corner, you know, in a 22-bedroom yes, estate. Right around the corner. Yeah. And that was the main house. The main house was 22 bedrooms, multi-multi-acres on the <laughs> water, and, you know, uh, gone at 82. Uh, Bob Wilde is still with us, and, and uh, he was an amazing resource for this story, right? Well, he was. I mean, Bob worked with me every day, uh, and John. Bob and John, I mean, we were on the phone and on, on Zoom, and uh, Bob, uh, after the magicians, Bob Wilde and Art, uh, they recorded three albums with the Blues and Magoos, uh, Psychedelic Lollipop, uh, Electric Comic Book, and Basic Blues and Magoos, and of course the hit song, We Ain't Got Nothing Yet. And then they produced albums for Bunky and Jake, Kangaroo, Koala, and many others, and they ended their relationship around 1969. And Bob reformed the uh, the Blues Magoos with Pepe Castro, and they recorded two albums on ABC. But then uh, Bob moved to Los Angeles. He he worked with Seals and Crofts Publishing Company. And he's there. He lives outside L.A. on, on a ranch and still does some production and acting. And Art continued working. Uh, he worked into the 2000s. He worked on Twin Peaks, the TV series, and the feature film Fire Walk With Me. But he's been quiet, quieter lately. Right. You know? But, yeah, you know, everybody went on and had uh, continuing careers. It wasn't like, uh, you know, a little teenage band from a small town somewhere and cut a little single on an independent label and then, uh, you know, disappeared. These were seasoned professionals. Yeah, every- and- yeah, everybody everybody stayed in the business uh, in in music for a long time. Very long trails. May have done other things as well, uh, but they stayed in the business and right. kept recording. You know? uh, I when I finally I finally at Apostolic got a hit with Witchy Taito, and then we got driven out of business by the big guys, uh, and I wound up being uh, in folk music again uh, and historical music, as it turned out much expanded from folk music and then in astrology which is a totally different thing where i'm probably better known than as a musician believe it or not so it was uh, there was a lot of energy packed together in those four persons and it showed when we played uh but it also was pent up it was very pent up because uh we weren't going where we wanted to we're doing we we're going where we had to uh and doing a good job of it but uh, eventually, basically, we got freed and everybody exploded in their own direction. That's a perfect place to end on, I think, John. That says it all. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. 
You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Ray Brandis, Stephen Schmidt, and Phil Payne. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.